on CGRU, you're listening to Built to Play. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. And today, I want to talk a bit about heroes and medieval Europe. When we play role-playing games, especially ones set in or inspired by medieval Europe, who do we pick to be our heroes? Right. And after years of study, I think I have the answer. It's white dudes. They're the heroes. That's it for today's show. Uh, from CGRU, you've been listening to Built to Play. I've been Armin Bali, And I've been... Wait, that's not it. We haven't done my part of the show yet. Uh, okay, fair, fair. And there is a bit more to this. But the answer does seem a little obvious, right? Like, white men get to be, play the hero in a lot of medieval stories or medieval fiction stories. That doesn't have to be the case. Even when we talk about history, the writer gets to pick who the heroes and villains are. And to show that, let's look at one game in particular, Kingdom Come Deliverance. It's a small game that sold more than a million copies, but somehow prompted a huge discussion over how to depict race in medieval Europe and ties into a conversation that goes all the way back to Gamergate. God damn it. Yeah, so we're going there. But first, what is Kingdom Come Deliverance? Oh, (laughs) that game is Kingdom Come Deliverance is an open world role playing game. And I guess the big hook that it's kind of been sold on is that It's set in 1403 in the Kingdom of Bohemia, in a small section of the Kingdom of Bohemia. It's billed as being very historically accurate. So no magic, no laser guns, no dragons, that kind of thing. So you were just hearing Reed McCarter, freelance writer, fellow podcaster, man with opinions. We've had him on the show before. So what makes Kingdom Come interesting from a design standpoint is twofold. The first is the emphasis on realism and historical accuracy. You got to eat, drink and bathe in Kingdom Come. Uh, you don't have to do that in a fantasy game like Skyrim. Second, Warhorse Studios, which created the game, is not too far from the region they're trying to emulate. They're based in Prague, the historical capital of Bohemia, now in the Czech Republic, and also known as Czechia. So they're not too far away from the history they want to depict, and that lends the game some authenticity. So who'd they pick to be the hero? Well, I mean, it's who you'd expect. You play as a Czech blacksmith named Henry. Henry, get up now. There's work to be done. Who gets swept up in the era's politics. Someone has to bring order and reunite the empire. <laughs> Look, it's not immediately a bad thing that it's just another white dude. Yeah, a lot of media stars white dudes. Stuff that's good, even. And Reed did find things to like about Kingdom Come. The way it sort of makes you very, very poor for a long time and how access to people at a station above you can like really leapfrog you into becoming more materially powerful is interesting. The issue here is how Kingdom Come frames the world around Henry that sparked discussion. By halfway through the game, there are very few non-Czech characters who are painted in a positive light. That includes the Cumans, an Islamic Turkish tribe who formed the backbone of an invading army. The thing that kicks off the start of the game is, you know, the foreign army invading and taking over and just sort of slaughtering everyone in the town that your character is from that you play as. There were dozens of banners flying on the hill above Scalitz. The ones who did the slaughtering spoke a, a strange language. But the game does make it clear pretty quickly that it's a lot of, it's a lot messier than just one person is sort of usurping the throne and and coming and invading. He's a foreigner. So you, you have this idea that maybe these people are not, you know, simple villains, but then the game at every other moment kind of frames them as as these bloodthirsty villains. Everything about them is seen as somehow strange. As you continue to play the game, it becomes sort of thrown into starker and starker relief that 
no, you are supposed to think of one side as villains. And unfortunately, what kind of happens is that the villains end up being the people who are, you know, the non-Czech people. So that becomes something that is harder and harder to ignore as the game goes on. Okay, so that's bad, but it's not exactly unique, right? The movie 300 was advertised as being a historically accurate film, but it portrays a battle between the Spartans as, and the Persians as a war against literal monsters. The humans might be depicted as strange here, but they're not seven feet tall and covered in piercings, are they? I mean, that's true, and but I would say that just because other bad representations of history exist, that doesn't mean that this gets a free pass. And as Reed wrote in an article for Unwinnable, the player is assured by one character that even though all armies will pillage, rape, and slaughter, it's the humans who will take the pleasure in it. Let's take it a step beyond depictions, though. We can actually see the developers' intent in the way they have talked about the game. Way back when Kingdom Come was being crowdfunded on Kickstarter, we're talking like 2014, a Tumblr user asked the devs a pretty simple question. Will there be non-player characters, so we're talking just characters in the environment, who are not white? Was the answer no? Correct, Dan. According to the user Tengo Kujin, they got a reply of, we left the ethnicities because there were none in Bohemia at that time. Or better, they're very rare. In the following year, the game's creative director, Daniel Barbara, uh, was then criticized for insisting that there were no black people in Bohemia. On February 22nd, 2015, Favre tweeted, Would you please explain to me what's racist about telling the truth? There were no black people in medieval Bohemia, period. Even follow that up with, We are consulting everything, that's all caps, with top historians in the period, and they laughed when I told them about this nonsense. I don't know a lot about medieval Bohemia, but that seems impossible. Yeah, so let's get back to Vavra in a second, because he's a fairly extreme character, but we can do a quick fact check. Here is a picture of St. Jerome painted by Master Theoderic in the late 14th century. Theoderic was the head of the Painters Guild in Prague. Um, Dan, would you mind describing what you see here? I'm seeing a guy who's distinctly not white. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that this guy at the very minimum, is brown, if not black. So we can at least say from that, at the absolute minimum, a bohemian knew what a black person looked like and knew them well enough to paint one. All right, but to give them some credit, I I don't know that the Kingdom Come devs would be convinced by one painting of a person of color. That doesn't necessarily prove that there were black people living within Bohemia. I mean, you're right. Uh, Martin Kilma, Warhorse's co-founder, said in a statement, After more than four years of intensive research, it can be stated that there is no proof that there were no dark-skinned people in Bohemia and vice versa. There are many things that we cannot prove. Otherwise, we would have to assume that, for example, lions would have lived in the forests of Bohemia. After all, the coat of arms of the ruling house is adorned with a lion. Where else could people have had this portrait? Which, okay. Fair. That's a challenge. We can go deeper. So let's meet David Perry. He's a former professor of medieval history at Dominican University. He's a columnist at the Pacific Standard and is currently an advisor to the history department at the University of Minnesota. Now, David will be the first to tell you that his academic background is not in Bohemia. It's in studying Venice. But here's how he paints a picture of Europe in the 1400s. Medieval people had very different ideas about identity, including thinking about things that we might call race. Um, But also what I like to say is that medieval people were not general, 
isolated. They did not have simple ideas about race. They didn't have simple ideas about identity. This idea that most medieval people lived in very isolated, hermetically sealed little worlds where they only saw other people that looked exactly like them and that if they saw anyone different, they reacted with xenophobia or with terror or with hate or with immediate prejudice. That just doesn't hold up. And medieval people, um, like modern people, had complicated ideas about identity, including the relationships between identity and appearance. So that's kind of the big meta picture. But here's something that, that I think we don't talk about often enough. The great Mediterranean world, which stretches far out of sight of the Mediterranean, is a world of people with different shades of brown skin, some darker, some lighter. And it's a world that functions because people and ideas and images and goods travel across that world. So we see images of people who look very different from each other in the art and in the literature from really the whole European Middle Ages uh, across, across the board. I have a very good friend named Kathleen Kennedy that talks about the ways in which African and Asian trade goods made it all the way to medieval England and what medieval English people thought about their coconuts and their parrots and their ginger. So even if you don't have individuals traveling from the subcontinents of India to England, you do have their items and their and, and you do have images and you do have stories and you do have poetry. So I just want us to throw away this idea that the Middle Ages can exist as very isolated villages in which people never saw anyone who looked different from themselves. Okay, and that makes a ton of sense, right? Economic force is going to drive trading, which is going to drive, you're going to see people having stuff that you don't have. There were the whole idea of like there being spice routes and just general goods traveling from one place to another is, is clear evidence that people were interacting with other people. Yeah, I think this is like 10th grade history, at least at Ontario uh, Canadian level. Um, I mean, we can go even beyond that, though, because we can think of what does it mean to have a person of color? What does we identify that today as a marker of race? But in actuality, race is a relatively new phenomenon, especially this idea of whiteness and non-whiteness. Can we find people who talk in ways about skin color that we could then uh, sort of reach back and say that's that's sort of proto-whiteness? Maybe, but I certainly don't see it generally. And when we talk about whiteness today, we are talking about whiteness as constructed in the context of the Atlantic slave trade, in the context of global exploration and then colonization and imperialism, in the context of moving large numbers of black-skinned peoples as enslaved peoples from West Africa into uh, the Americas. And you can't stop me there because we're going to go one step further. Uh, Geraldine Hang is a medieval historian who has examined how people thought of race in the Middle Ages. If you're looking for example of race in the era, um, perhaps we can turn to the Mapamundi, a sort of uh, map of the world that was popular in the 13th century. Um, Hang writes about how this map treats people outside of Europe. Quote, rendering cartographically the project of European identity in surveying the world sees Europe as the civilized territory of urban life, a web of cities, while global races swarm in other vectors of the world, unquote. Heng then describes these, a lot of these other races. They get depicted as literal monsters. Yet among those monsters are creatures who would have been associated with the Jews, who today are considered white. So it's not really a one-to-one -one comparison of race then and race now. 
Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, you examine medieval history for like even 10 seconds and hot damn uh, anti-Semitism is a thing. It really never stopped being a thing. Also true. Getting back on track a bit, this is David's final word on where there are people of color in medieval Bohemia. People move. It's one of the fundamental truths of, of how sort of societies and cultures are shaped is people move around. You know, are there people from deep sub-Saharan Africa um, coming into medieval Bohemia in the 15th century? I don't have any evidence of that. And if I don't know whether there were any people of sufficiently dark skin in medieval Bohemia, I'm pretty sure that the video game director also can't say for sure. Seems fair. Yeah. Um, so, okay, we could talk about this for the rest of the episode. We could talk about why some primary sources might be unreliable here. We can delve further into the lives of medieval Bohemians. But we never have firm answers. There's no one document that's going to say, actually, 100% people of color or black people lived here. But as Reed mentions to me, um, that's not actually the point. Probably the bigger issue with that is, well, why is it important? Why is this element something that you want to focus on, that you're, you're drawing the line in the sand here and saying, we can abstract certain things. We can say that when you get you know, a, a sword to the cheek and you're bleeding, you can go and you can sleep for 12 hours and you'll be okay. But you can't say that there was someone from North Africa who ended up in this area of this game. That's too far. So why does race matter here? It's a good question, and War Horse's creative director, Daniel Vavra, said that it mattered to him because of historical accuracy. Here's him talking about the criticism they received about that at the 2018 Reboot Develop conference in Croatia. I double-checked with the historians we worked for. Like I asked them, like, so we were accused of this, so is there like a 1% chance that I'm wrong? And... The guy said, like, not really, but like it, it, you are most likely correct. Of course, that you can doubt about everything. So, so like, yeah, there is a 0.001 chance that something happened, but 99.9% it didn't. Prior to the game's release, Vavar was primarily known for being a bit of a troll. Dan, I'm just going to show you a collection of things Vavar has posted on social media. You can tell me what sticks out to you. He seems like a douchebag. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say, right? Like, you're seeing a lot of these posts that are obviously provocative. Stuff like, shots fired, awaiting counterattack, your sincerely basement neckbeard troll, hashtag Gamergate. So he did support Gamergate, which um, he described in a statement in January 2018 to the German website GameStar. For me, at the heart of it... Gamergate was always about the freedom of speech and the freedom of opinion and thoughts, end quote. Dan, how would you succinctly describe Gamergate? Gamergate was an extremely conservative reaction that was uh, trying to vilify women in video games and eventually also people of color in video games and LGBT people in video games that masqueraded itself as a fight for ethics in gaming journalism, which was really never a concern uh, and has now been very closely linked to the alt-right movement that um, is are really big fans of white nationalism. So here's a little more from the statement commenting on his activities from that time period when Gamergate was a, a literal torrent, a horde, quote, Today, I see my comments in a different light. I would like to apologize if my points of view in individual discussions should have been better communicated by me. I'm 
sure, I should have used better word choice or forms of communication in some cases. So, Armand. Yeah? You are the person of color here, and I hate to put this on you, but I am the white Jewish person here, so I'm not going to be as effective at answering this question. Is Daniel Vavra a racist? Is Warhorse racist? Is Kingdom Come racist? I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, I asked Warhorse if I could interview Daniel Vavra, and their PR manager said, quote, we already made our statements about that and closed the case for us. So I don't know. I didn't talk to him. That being said, David has a pretty strong opinion here. It's complicated what to do. Some of these other games, uh, I, I was recently playing uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, in which, which is a, obviously a, a very magical kind of game, but in the same kind of medievalish environment, in which sort of their theory of race seems to be to just randomly scatter the world with people of different skin color with no particular reason. Well, that's not so super satisfying to me either as a historian to just sort of go through a village and see there are 12 farmers in the village and each one has different skin color and different sort of ethnic features. That's, that's again, a, a kind of a choice. And that's what I want to emphasize. This creator uh, has taken modern ideas about race and tried to write them backwards to create a game that he can justify everyone being, every hero, because again, there's an invasion from the East, every, every sort of protagonist being pure white in his, his imagination. And that, again, is a very revealing choice. It doesn't, it, let me just say, it doesn't mean, it doesn't reveal that he's a racist. I'm not interested in some ways in the, if you'll excuse me, the ontology of racism. I'm not interested if he's racist in his heart or not. Um, but it is a racist act to create a game like that. It is something that sends certain kinds of messages about who gets to be heroes and who gets to be villains uh, to make that that kind of choice. So, Vavra has heard criticism like this. A gaming news website called Waypoint declined to even cover the game, at least partially because of his behavior. And he's been condemned all over social media, the press. But I don't think Vavra gets where the criticism comes from. For him, these are baseless accusations and almost a crusade against him personally. Here's him again at the Reboot Develop Conference talking about how he feels he's been treated by the media. First, they make some ridiculous claim about you. They don't ask you. And then they say, oh, he really, he didn't say it, but he could have. And because he could have, he is a terrible person. And because he is a terrible person, we will not speak to him. I don't like the situations. But on the other hand, I don't like being accused of stuff that I didn't do and apologize for the stuff that I didn't do, actually. But remember what David said. This isn't about who Vavra is as a person. It's about what he said. And he isn't the only one who thinks about medieval Europe in this way. There's a reason that we can almost end this episode by saying medieval heroes are white dudes. It's because we've assumed that. I include myself in that we, along with most Canadians, and so would David. There is a general myth in contemporary Western European, Canadian, North American kind of white society. There was this idealized medieval past that was simpler, that was lords and ladies, that was chivalry, that was defending honor against bad guys. And in those stories about bad guys, quite frequently, the, the imagined bad guy is someone of color, someone who is non-Christian. And it's an ideal that 
has been used in, in really quite terrible ways. We can talk about Nazi appropriation of sort of medieval iconography as they built their regime in ways that don't seem so bad. We could talk about Tolkien and the ways that he too has has these has sort of racial essentialism. There's a reason that orcs are dark, right? And the reason is not that Tolkien was necessarily consciously racist or not. That's a big subject of debate. Now, he was certainly an Englishman of the, the mid-20th century. But there's a reason that orcs are dark. It's a compelling narrative, and one I see in my students all the time. The idea of the Crusades as some kind of heroic lost cause in which these brave soldiers did these amazing feats of heroism and then only to fall before the great onslaught. Um, I hear my students uh, and not just politically conservative students, but my students in general over the last 20 years of teaching about the Crusades, they often fall into the trap of saying we when they mean uh, the, the Christian crusader forces and, and them when they're talking about the Islamic forces. Uh, and that's something that as a teacher I've had to learn to grow very uh, savvy, savvy about calling them on. I, I guess it is definitely it is interesting how much of our racial and cultural politics we put upon the past and upon all media, but also how much of the politics of that era kind of affect us today. Yeah, it's a weird thing because you you have Skyrim, you have Game of Thrones, we have all these pieces of media that are drawing upon this fractious period of history as a way to either draw parallels or to show um, kind of the fractious politics of today. And in doing so, they're going to pick heroes and they're going to pick villains. And, and it's fascinating because usually so often you see these issues come up in fantasy depictions of a of fictional medieval stories, right? Well, we have race separation, you know? I even think of stuff, like stuff as simple as Zelda, right? Where it's like you've got the Hylians, which are just humans, right? They're elves, but they're humans. And then you have Gorons, who they're mountain folk, who are crude and not intelligent. And then Zora, who are aquatic fish folk who have a strange sense of culture, right? Like, it's even stuff as simple as that, where it's just like they are applying some medieval racial traits to those people. But here you have a game that is something to be realistic, and in that, being in, in its own way, like, hyper-unrealistic in its devoted attempt to being real. Yeah, exactly. And so long as we're talking about realism... The 15th century is a fascinating time of change in Europe. Cultures are meeting for the first time. People are moving across the continent in ways they hadn't done in centuries. And by the end of this era, Europeans will have embarked for a whole new world. And it's really a shame that we don't see more stories take advantage of that. There are opportunities there. And it sounds to me like Kingdom Come has completely missed those opportunities. And that's too bad, not just for the sake of diversity or for issues of representation in fiction. But if they wanted to make the best game possible, I think that they missed an opportunity there. So thank you so much to Reed McCarter and David Perry for their time. This piece was inspired by a work done by the team at Waypoint and an article Reed wrote for Unwinnable called Kingdom Come Deliverance, Mythmaking and Historical Accuracy. He's also the host of the Bullet Points podcast. David Perry is a columnist for the Pacific Standard. For more on race in the Middle Ages, David recommends The Invention of Race in the European Middle Ages by Geraldine Heng. We used her work for research in this episode. Oh, and special thanks to Reboot Develop for hosting conference with Vavra attending right as we were working on this podcast, and to Karen Young. You're listening to Built to Play. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. 
Tell me about Yakuza 6, Dan. Tell me all about those beautiful boys. These beautiful boys aren't so beautiful in this game. <laughs> oh, what's going is, on? These beautiful boys are rugged and bloodied and uh, beaten up. That's how you became boss, right? By fighting back then. <laughs> so I, this is the sixth game. Like this, and I'm assuming that has something to well, do with... Well, this is the sixth game, but it's actually like the eighth game, right? Okay. Because there's like Yakuza 0, which is a prequel, and also like the Yakuza game that takes place in like the feuding states period or whatever. Right. Um, there's a zombie one. There's a zombie one. There is a zombie one. So that's three more. There's probably a mobile one at some point. Yeah. There's a lot of Yakuza, but I haven't played any of those Yakuza's. I've only played Yakuza 6. So what has been... So tell me about the the men in Yakuza 6. Yakuza 6 is really driven by one man, Kazuma Kiryu, who is a big man. He's an older gentleman. He's probably in his... As far as I can tell, his 50s, which I think in Japanese media is uh, ancient. Yeah. Really, in Western media, it's ancient, too. But in Western media, you get to star in Die Hard and be like, oh, this guy's too old for this. But you're actually, like, 20-something right. or 30-something. Uh, Kazuma Kiryu is 50-something years old. He's been a Yakuza captain. He's been in jail a couple times. He's in and out. But he's got a family now, and he just wants to get back to his kids, except the Yakuza keep pulling him back in for one more job. So... This is actually a character with a fairly long history. You're encountering this game. I mean, like you didn't play. You didn't play. I've not played Kawa- a single Yakuza game. No, none of the Kiwamis, which are the remake. Not Nothing. Yakuza Zero. Not not a not a Yakuza. I haven't yaked a bit. So as uh, this game has been getting a Ryu lot of no Toku. <laughs> this game has been getting like a, a, a lot of appeal, especially following Yakuza Zero. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a good entry point? <sighs> I don't know that it is. Okay. Yakuza 6 is a really great video game that I almost regret having played first because I I feel like, A, Yakuza 6 opens with about an hour of cutscenes. Oh, my God. Uh, and I've been told that is par for the course in the Yakuza experience, and it does a really great job of telling you, here's sort of what happened in Yakuza 5, which I've been told you should never play because it's not a great video game. Oh. For a really great summary of what Yakuza games you should and shouldn't play, Heather Alexandra has a piece on uh, Kotaku that goes through each of them, kind of gives you a basic rundown of what they are. I only read this about halfway through Yakuza 6. Okay. It really helped me a lot once I did. Yakuza 6 is maybe not the best entry point. Yakuza 6 opens with... A bunch of cutscenes about explaining the end of Yakuza 5. Kazuma Kiryu going to jail. Three years later, Kazuma Kiryu is out of jail. And here's everything that happened in the time he was in jail. Which, once you get to that point, you don't really need to know anything else. Some characters will show up and get, like, their big, like, turn towards the camera. It's me! And you won't know who they are. But otherwise, Yakuza 6 is a really good entry point, I think, mechanically. And narratively, while it does build on everything else, it does kind of stand on its own. Once you're about three or four hours into the game, it doesn't really expect you to know anything about other Yakuza characters. So, one thing that's fascinating, that I've always just looked at this series as, is... um is kind of a sequel, not a sequel, but like a spiritual successor to Shenmue. Let's say what Shenmue is. Yeah. Shenmue is the game that Grand Theft Auto upstaged. Shenmue was a Dreamcast game, originally supposed to be a Saturn game, but it's one of the most expensive games Sega ever made because it was an extraordinarily detailed open-world game in an era before open-world games were all the rage. In fact, it came out only a month, I think, before Grand Theft Auto 3 or a few months before Grand Theft Auto 3. Which is, like, that is the one that, like, all... You got, like, a string of of open-world games that were called Grand Theft Auto clones purely because of the success of Grand Theft Auto 3. Absolutely. And so Shenmue came out just a little bit before that, um, and it had a very different approach to the open world. Grand Theft Auto 3, if you remember, is actually very big for the time in terms of having an open world, but it's not particularly detailed. Not a lot is going on in that world. Not just that it doesn't look spectacular these days, but also just just not a lot to do beyond, you know, carjacking and shooting guys. 
a um, couple mini games here and there, but really it's nothing too spectacular. It really doesn't get to the level of depth that Shenmue was at until maybe San Andreas or even actually Grand Theft Auto 4. Right. You don't really see, I would say San Andreas is probably the point at which you start seeing, and that's a late era PS2 game, the point at which you start seeing the depth that Shenmue had, but Shenmue had a much tighter open world. It was one small village. So you weren't really getting the same kind of experience from those games, and Shenmue just wasn't as exciting. It was more, the martial arts combat was based on the Virtua Fighter games, it was a little bit more complicated mechanically to get around, it didn't have that sort of mass appeal of, I want to let off some steam and shoot some guys. It didn't have that going for it. Yakuza takes that idea of having a small, detailed open world and really rolls deeper on it. The open world is a fraction of what you'd find in Grand Theft Auto V, a game that came out several years ago at this point. But Yakuza 6's open world is super detailed. It asks you to get to know its individual streets. You can walk into almost every, you know, little store, every little environment. You can talk to a lot of NPCs, which you don't really get a chance to do in, in Grand Theft Auto. The world feels more alive. And, and the game really says, okay, we're going small and building up as opposed to building out. And so we're going to get maximalist as hell with every gameplay design decision up to a point. Right. So where... Where are kind of the contours of this reality? Like, where does it decide to draw the line of like, okay, we won't simulate that? Yeah, so Yakuza 6 will, you can walk into a lot of stores, but you can't walk into every store. Right. It will let you sit down and eat food, and when you're done eating food, it'll turn out you got warped to this restaurant's dining area, which is on the second floor of this fast food restaurant, just like it is in Japan. Right. Which is awesome. But there are some buildings you can't go into, and some NPCs you can't talk to. And also, nobody seems to care that you're beating the crap out of some teenagers in the middle of a busy street. Um, Also, it doesn't really want to—it doesn't really care about anything that happens out of the confines of its two major areas. There's a couple zones that take place, like— you can. This is just an area where you just fight people. But if it's not inside Kamurocho, which is its sort of Kabukicho knockoff area, very Shinjuku style, um, gang violence, but also glitz and glamour kind of area, red light district, but also you know theaters and par- places for and a park for kids, um, and then also a city that I don't recall the name of in Hiroshima, which is a small seaside town um, of very few people. Outside of those parts of the world, nothing in Yakuza matters. There's also Kazuma's Orphanage, which you basically never hear from again after the first hour of the game. Okay. Um, Or at least not at the part I've gotten to. I'm probably a few hours from the end of the game, and I really haven't thought about the Orphanage since I first visited it. And there's no way to go back to it either, by the way. You mentioned those side quests. I was in the room when you encountered some of these side quests. How do they contrast with the main plot of the game? If the main plot of the game is going for the kind of tone of, say, a Takashi Miike movie, or or really, let's let's put it more bluntly, if it's putting for a tone of a Godfather, the way that I think Grand Theft Auto goes for that kind of tone, right, very serious. Yeah. Maybe it's going for now a more modern gang movie, but definitely Grand Theft Auto 3 was going for that kind of tone. Yeah. Yakuza 6's main plot shoots for that tone as well, very serious, very self-serious. Yakuza 6's side quests maybe aim more for sort of a slice-of-life anime tone. (laughs) Uh, Some of my favorites include installing uh, a personal assistant app on your phone like Siri, who eventually plots to take over the world, Um, trying to catch a guy's Roomba that got free and ate the engagement ring he had ready for his uh, girlfriend, um, get setting up the baseball team in Hiroshima because the Yakuza has sort of broken it up and it's all up to you to put it back together. Uh, or a weird one of my favorites, a very early side quest where you buy a girl a $500 picture of your daughter, <laughs> which is weird, given that you've never met this girl before and you never interact with her again. I just, I, what, I just love the um, 
there's a lot of the, the stories that you've described here who which either could be their own like TV shows or own like they feel like you're stepping into another world for a moment. Absolutely. Where, Absolutely. Where um I remember just being aghast at the I, I witnessed the the AI, the personal assistant yeah. going mad one. And it felt like did we did we stumble into like a different anime? Did we it, stumble it, into like a different video game? Almost? It definitely feels like that and, and it it is what makes Yakuza Six so <laughs> enthralling, honestly. What Yakuza Six's combat is good. It's not spectacular, but it's good. Uh, it's better when you don't mess up and dump all your points into stats and not moves like I did because I don't know how to hit the L1 button. But Yakuza 6 Combat is okay. Its world is small enough that fetch quests feel not like a total chore. And the mini games are well designed. But where Yakuza really shines is that the interaction between Kazuma Kiryu, a complete straight man who's red, who's, but who is down for absolutely anything, his interactions with this world that is all at once, completely insane, but also totally down-to-earth and self-serious, are just a joy to watch. He's a guy who will go learn how to live chat with girls who will strip for you, which is a real thing in this game for some reason. But he's also a guy who, like, believes in honor and is ready to beat the crap out of a dude who disrespected his daughter. Like, it's a game that will, like, take seriously the idea of gang violence creating room for the triads from China to move in and the Korean mafia wanting to build itself back up to take revenge on Kazuma Kiryu. But Kazuma Kiryu is also a guy who's going to dress up in a mascot costume with an orange head, pose for the kids, and beat the crap out of people who tell him his orange head costume isn't cool. That's kind of incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's you can't turn beauty. away. You yeah. can't turn away. And I have caught myself playing Yakuza until two or three in the morning just to see what happens next. To play a main quest plot and then play a side quest plot just to go at it. Yakuza Six is a game in which you and your Yakuza rival fight your way through a brothel you apparently destroyed in the first Yakuza game, to wherein you meet a bunch of homeless people who the Yakuza who the triads have hired to. To, to essentially squat in this location, but also they've captured a guy and put him in a gimp suit and locked him up in a basement and he'll throw bricks at you until you fall down and have to fight him like four times? <laughs> what? That's a real thing that happens in that game. It's a series of boss, fight, boss fights against a guy in bondage gear. <laughs> and like what you're supposed to do to beat it is to pick up, like you can't actually hurt him significantly. I could because my damage was off the charts, but he takes so much damage and almost kills you in like four hits. You have to pick up like sledgehammers and knock his head in with them. Oh my god. And and that's like the least crazy thing that happens in that area of the game. Yakuza 6 is insane and you can't look away from how crazy it is and that's the joy of it. It's this beautiful crazy mess that is designed in a way that everything you do is maximalist and nuts but every part of it is, is enthralling and designed meticulously so every part of it works in harmony to make you feel like you're part of this world that could never exist. So... For people who have never tried Yakuza, this is your first game. Absolutely uh, my first game. What do you think that people should, like, have in mind if this game is something, like, perhaps up their alley? Like, what what is what is one looking for here? Yakuza 6 is a game that has a really tightly designed open world where everything really, everything you do feels meaningful in a way, which is cool. And it has a plot that is, doesn't really overstay its welcome. What you have to keep in mind is that there's a lot of cutscene. It's very talky, much more so than any open world game I've really come across in recent memory. It's very classical Japanese game design in that way, where it will stop and we're going to talk about what just happened and what's about to happen. Don't be afraid if you float in and out of paying attention at the very beginning of the game. And don't bother checking the chronicle thing that tells you about the plot of the previous Yakuza games. It's, they're kind of poorly told. 
stick with Yakuza 6 because the localization is unbelievable and it's really worth getting through the game to experience some of the side plots and the main plots. Well, thank you for, one, taking the experience of playing through the whole thing and then also uh, relaying it for us here. Absolutely. Play Yakuza 6, and uh, I'm actually very excited to play Yakuza Kiwami now. And that's the remake of the first game. That is the remake of the first game. Yakuza Kiwami 2 also coming out soon. I'm also very excited to play that, and I really, and I do kind of want to play, uh, not as much, Hokutoga Gotoku, the Fist of the North Star Yakuza game. Oh, wait, that exists? That exists. I don't know if it's good, but I definitely am interested now. <laughs> You've been listening to Built to Play on CGRU. I'm Armanik Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. You can follow us on Twitter at Built to Play, where you can send us all your favorite dank memes about Cosmic Kiryu, or visit our website, builttoplay.ca. You can find us on Facebook, but hey, if you really like the show, be sure to tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It would really help us out. Or you can send us an email at builtplayshow at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. You can follow me personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-A-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen on Twitter. Thanks for listening. And remember, Onomichi rules. Thank you so much.